Amen. I was hoping my son would be okay with me preaching, but obviously that has not changed um, in the last few months. Uh, so sorry about that. <laughs> well, throughout the book of Proverbs, we've been called to wisdom, right? We've, been, we've seen that pursuing wisdom is not something optional for the Christian, but something that all Christians are called to seek. Uh, to be unwise is not merely silly. No, there's a moral component to wisdom. Remember, the opposite of wisdom was foolishness. And what does the fool say in his heart? He says that there is no God. And so the fool will face God's judgment one day. The wise, on the other hand, are those who listen to Jesus and do what he says, just like the wise man who built his house upon solid rock rather than sand. Well, we know this, right? Well, I assume many of us know this. Isn't it straightforward? But, as you know, sometimes choosing the wise life is hard. We're told that wisdom comes from God. Therefore, if God has revealed himself to us in his word, well, we should be reading it, right? Uh, reading and drinking from it, and yet many of us struggle to do it. And maybe you are reading, but you find it difficult. You feel like, oh, I don't know what's going on in this text. I don't know what I'm meant to get out of it. Or you just feel lost. Uh, maybe it's sitting in church listening to God's word proclaimed and you struggle to pay attention. Uh, hopefully not today. Uh, we know we should be wise in what we watch and read. And yet we're so keen to click on that salacious headline or racy photo. But maybe it's something else for us. Maybe it's the call to be wise with our words that's hard. We're so quick to jump into an argument, respond with a sharp tongue. Or maybe you find it hard to be wise with money, to be generous with it, to be someone who doesn't trust in their riches. Now, whatever it is, I'm sure many of you, and I'm not taking myself out of that, I find it hard too. Many of us find wise living difficult. And then when we go through a book of um, book like Proverbs, well, it comes across as a set of instructions that are burdensome and never-ending, something you can't possibly achieve. Now, thankfully, Proverbs 30 speaks to us who feel this way. Now, however you take verse 1, uh, there are many options. Your Bibles will have a footnote about this. Well, it's clear the author feels the difficulty of finding wisdom. Look also at verses 2 and 3. Surely I am not uh, surely I am only a Bruce, not a man. I do not have a human understanding. I have not learned wisdom. Uh, both the 20, uh, NRV 2011 and the ESV note that verse 1 speaks of weariness. Uh, being wise and acquiring wisdom is hard, even from the inspired author's point of view. Uh, and if that's not confronting enough, well, verse 3 is also quite confusing. And it says in the NIV... I have not learned wisdom, nor have I attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. And that seems quite confusing given what he says later in verses 5 and 6 about God's word being flawless. Now, I'm happy to chat more about this verse at Morning Tea because we don't have time to dig into it a lot. But I do want to point out the earliest translation of the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, written before the time of Jesus, translated this differently. Now, they thought it said, God has taught me wisdom and I know the knowledge of the holy. And that also makes sense. Uh, but there's also a perfectly viable way of translating it uh, without changing any of the words that says, I have not learned wisdom, but I have knowledge of the holy one. And I think this makes 
a lot of sense of the text. Uh, the author is basically saying, look, I don't know much. I don't have wisdom, but I know God and he gives wisdom. And that's why he says God's word is flawless. Uh, there's also the questions in verse 4. If someone could do all these things, go to heaven, come down, gather the wind, wrapped up the waters in a cloak, established all the ends of the earth. Well, that person, they would truly know wisdom, wouldn't they? It's reminiscent of the book of Job, chapters 38 to 41. Uh, go and read that in your own time. Uh, but God says to Job in uh, chapter 38, verses 4 and 5, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? And the passage just goes on and on about God's power and authority. The questions that God asks in Job, uh, chapters 38 to 41, are questions that are rhetorical, almost sarcastic, right? Of course, Job wasn't there when God created the world. Uh, When God says, surely you know, well, he's pointing out, Job, you weren't there. You're nothing compared to God. But here in Proverbs 30, the author points out, well, he hasn't done these things, right? He hasn't done all those things. Only God has, and so only God can be truly wise. He already said he doesn't have wisdom, the author, and understanding. And that's why he goes on to point out in verses 5 and 6 that God's word is flawless. It's enough for us. Wisdom is not just reaching a state where you know more than before. It's grounded in a humble dependence on God. It's an acknowledgement that we are nothing without him. And I think this is how we can take the whole chapter as a unit rather than just thinking it's a random Proverbs joined together. And so let's see how this works in Proverbs 30 as we take a brief tour around some of the categories that are covered. And so there's wealth, people, society, and creation. Now first, wealth. Uh, Verses 7 to 9, the author asks that God will give him neither poverty nor riches. Why? Well, look at verse 9. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Now, if you think about it, both of these scenarios involve exalting ourselves and our needs above God. We can either think we don't need God if we have too much, Uh, And that just puts God out of the picture. Or we can bring God's name into disrepute by stealing and therefore lowering God. They're both the opposite of wisdom because wisdom starts with knowing our place before God and knowing him. Now, I wanted to make it clear at this point, I'm not saying that it's wrong to be rich or poor. Uh, Dave gave a helpful sermon two weeks ago, uh, so feel free to check it out again if you can't remember. But we should be very cautious to wish for either extreme. I mean, it's no, no wonder why Jesus makes it clear you can't serve both God and money. Jesus spoke a lot about money in the New Testament. Well, if you have too little, you'll probably end up thinking about it most of the time, right? And elevating it above God in importance. Have too much, and you may forget that it is God who has graciously provided us with every good thing. Uh, we can't spend too much time on this uh, in the New Testament, but I'll just say the New Testament calls us to radical generosity following Jesus' example. He was rich, and yet he became poor for our sake. But it also doesn't call us to uh, radical asceticism or poverty, where we abstain from every possible luxury. No, because 1 Timothy 4 says, every good gift, and that includes money, is to be welcomed with thanksgiving to God. And so this call to be neither rich nor poor, I think is still with us 
today. We just need to work out where that point in the middle is. Feel free to have that discussion that morning tea. But that's verses 7 to 9, wisdom and wealth. Next, we have groups of people who consider themselves above the law. People who slander, people who curse others, including their parents, verses 11 and 17. Those who use violence for financial gain, verse 14. And that makes sense of the leech in verse 15. Because the leech, the leech is an example of those who use violence for financial gain. They suck the life out of others. You've also got those who are pure in their own eyes, verse 12. And that's quite similar to verse 13. Uh, There's also the adulteress in verse 20 who thinks what she's doing is okay. And so what groups all these people together? Well, they all live as if God was not judge, as if God was not watching. They're the opposite of the author. Now, even though the author claimed to not have wisdom and understanding, well, he definitely had a humble fear of God. And this comes uh, comes back again to the, the root of wisdom, right? The grounding of wisdom, it must come from God and from knowing him. And that's where all these people have missed the point. They've put themselves up as the arbiter of truth. And isn't that the heart of sin, or at least one big part of it? Think of what Adam and Eve did when they took the fruit. Didn't they set themselves up as God? They said, my way is better than God's way. Well, we started off by considering what these problems say to us who are struggling to be wise perhaps many of us, but couldn't we use this as an excuse for sin? Everyone struggles with this problem, so well, it doesn't really matter if I do it. And I think that's why the author has these groups of people here in, in chapter 30. The point is the author knows his shortcomings. You know, He doesn't know and understand God as well as he'd like. He doesn't consider himself wise, but he still knows God and still knows his word. He humbly recognizes that It's only from knowing God that we can acquire wisdom at all. He still sits under God and his word. And that's the distinction between the person struggling with wisdom and the people described in this section so negatively because they don't sit under God's word. They don't sit under God. They reject it. They make themselves the author of what is right and wrong. And so we can't use our struggles as an excuse for sin or to normalize it. Well, we've looked at wealth and how it relates to God, and we've looked at people who don't sit under God's rule. Now to our next, next category, society. Uh, more specifically, the God-given order that's in society. Look at verses 21 to 23. Here we have the servant who becomes king. And now first, that, that maybe that seems a bit mean, right? Uh, don't we live in an egalitarian society where anyone can become anyone? But here we have a servant and presumably a servant of the king. Remember the context of Proverbs, written to a king's son. So a servant of the king, then, who becomes king. So the servant is not just someone who ends up as king, but the servant is someone who usurps the king, in fact. An example would be uh, 1 Kings eleven twenty six, Jeroboam, he was one of King Solomon's officials. Uh, the word officials there is the same as the word for servant. And this Jeroboam rebels, and he becomes king of the northern tribes of Israel. It's a reversal of God's order in society. And in Jeroboam and Solomon's case, well, this was judgment on Israel. 
And it's probably something similar with the servant who displaces her mistress in verse 23. We're not talking about upward social mobility here. Uh, We're talking about a woman who has somehow replaced the queen or the queen mother and won the affections of the husband, somewhat reminiscent of the adulteress in verse 20. Uh, In between those two examples, there's the godless fool who gets plenty to eat. Again, maybe you're thinking, well, that's a bit mean. Uh, But that's the opposite of the wisdom found in Proverbs. Uh, Let me read Proverbs 22, verse 4. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Or look at Proverbs uh, 13, 25. The righteous eat to their heart's content, but the stomach of the wicked goes hungry. And so here in Proverbs 30 is a reversal of the usual pattern of life. It's the reversal of the normal order of society that God has given. And it's the same, perhaps, with the uh, contemptible woman who is married. And maybe what's in mind here are the many warnings in Proverbs about the quarrelsome wife. Uh, for example, uh, Proverbs 21.9 and 25.24, the same thing repeated. Better to live on the corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. And so the wise life, which is from God, is better than the alternative. Society is better off following the God-given order of things. And so again, Proverbs 30 points us to living under God's rule. And that's where wisdom lies. Not from knowing everything there is to know about the world or about God. No, it comes from sitting under God's rule. And finally, we have our last category, creation. Now, I'm referring to verses like 18, 19, or even 24 to 28. Here, the author makes observations about the world, things that are too amazing for him, verses 18 and 19. And perhaps some of this is lost on us today, given how much more we know about the world. But it is amazing, isn't it, how the eagle soars and flies so fast. I don't know if you know the peregrine falcon. I don't know if you know the speed it reaches when it dives down to get its prey. It's over 300 kilometers per hour. That's just ridiculous in my mind. But it's amazing, right? Even how the snake slithers. It's a movement we can't replicate despite the best efforts of our youth. Even the way of a a man with a young woman. There's something mysterious about why certain people are attracted to one another. Now, before I got married, my brother told me he was glad and almost surprised that Ada would accept me, given he thought I didn't have much to offer. Now, so clearly for him, there was some mystery there between us and maybe you've seen some of that mystery between others around you or take for example the animals in verses 29 and 30 there's something amazing about what god has made in creation and it's the same with the wisdom given to ants hyraxes locusts and lizards in verses 24 to 28 now why does the author bring these things up well it's because he sees we sit under god's rule We can only acquire wisdom from God. And that's why even these small creatures can have wisdom. Even though they cannot read books, talk, debate, investigate, and so on, well, they can still be wise because wisdom is God's gift. So again and again, we've seen in this chapter that wisdom comes from sitting under God's rule, under his way of living, under his order of everything. And it starts with humility then recognizing that wisdom only comes from God. I think that's why the last two verses of this chapter refer to the fool who exalts himself. 
Because friends, that's the opposite of the wise life, isn't it? It's a heart that thinks he or she knows better than God. And so, through the book of Proverbs, we've been encouraged to seek wisdom, to live a wise life, to live the way God wants us to. Uh, Proverbs 30 reminds us that the basis of all that comes from a humble posture before God. Uh, One that acknowledges our own weakness and that wisdom comes from not our own knowledge, ingenuity, investigation and experience and so on, but it comes from God and living with him as king. And so Proverbs 30 is an encouragement to those who find wise living hard because even the inspired author thought it was hard, but he still remembered he knew a God who so graciously gives us wisdom. He still sat under God's rule, under his way of life, under the order that God has instituted in this world. Now, it'd be a mistake for us to finish there. Uh, Because, you know, we're not merely preaching a Jewish sermon. No, we want to be thinking about what difference does Jesus make. And that's true for any Old Testament passage. And if you go back to the passage, it's hard to read verse 4 and not think of Jesus, right? Verse 4. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is the name of his son? Surely you know. Now the author was not thinking about Jesus. Uh, He was probably thinking of God and God's king. That's what God's son meant to the Jews. He uh, He knew God could only know himself truly. But we know that Jesus is someone who has gone up to heaven and come down. God the Son was there when he established the ends of the earth. Jesus does have the power to gather up the wind. Remember when he calms the storm in Mark 4? Uh, The author knows he didn't have wisdom. He knew he didn't have understanding and that the only one who could truly have wisdom was a person who had done these things. But we know there is a person who has done these things, and his name is Jesus. We know him who is wisdom from God, 1 Corinthians 1.30. And as the author of Proverbs 30 says, well, we can't know God's mind. Only God knows wisdom. But 1 Corinthians 2.16 starts on the same lines. Paul quotes Isaiah 40, verse 30. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And he's right, right? We can't tell God what to do. We don't know his mind. But right away, Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. And so not only is Jesus wisdom from God, and we know him, but Jesus has also given us the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And so we have the mind of Christ. And so Christians can know wisdom. So as encouraging as Proverbs 30 was for the earlier readers before Jesus, reminding them that it's not about what we know, our ingenuity, our, and so on, that grants wisdom, but that it's knowing the Lord and sitting under his rule and authority. As encouraging as it was for those back then, or how much more should it be for us this side of the cross today? Because we can know wisdom, not because we're smart, intelligent, have been through a lot, but because we know the one who is truly wise, the Lord Jesus. He's the one who sat under his father's rule and way of life and lived it perfectly. He said, not my will, but your will be done. 
in humble recognition that the Father's way was best and his spirit dwells within us. And so even though living the wise life can be hard and wearisome, well, we have someone, and not just anyone, but our own brother who knows how hard it is and yet lived the wise life. His spirit helps us and sustains it. So the question that Proverbs 30 poses for us today is not merely whether you're living the wise life. No, it's not a passage that's supposed to make you feel guilty because you know you aren't living that perfectly wise life. No, the author knew he fell short. The real question then is whether you're humbly admitting your insufficiency, whether you're trusting in the Lord Jesus, who is wisdom from God. And so is he your ultimate security? Is everything you do under his rule? The alternative is the fool who exalts himself, who thinks he knows better, the person who doesn't sit under God's word and his way of living. It's like the person who compartmentalizes some part of their life away. Maybe it's the, you've got your Christian life at church, but that's separate from the outside life at school or at work with your non-Christian friends. And those people, your non-Christian friends, see something quite different to what you're like at church. Um, When you do this, you're setting up part of your life outside God and his kingdom. In effect, you're saying that this part of your life, for this part of your life, you know better than God. You're saying that God doesn't see, doesn't care, or that he's not truly judge over everything. And that's like those people, you know, the people who don't sit under God's uh, rule that we looked at earlier in Proverbs 30. And now if that's you, well, it's not too late to change course, to heed the call of wisdom, to trust in Jesus, the truly wise one. Uh, Ask someone to help you with that. But for those who do trust in Jesus, we can also rejoice and be encouraged that our loving Heavenly Father has given us someone who knows the wise life is hard and yet lived it out perfectly. We can be encouraged that he dwells with us by his Spirit, helping us to live that wise life. And it's also great to be reminded that humbly sitting under God's rule is what is required of us. The wise life is not synonymous with knowing everything there is to know about God. Uh, we can all participate in wise living, no matter what your intelligence, reading ability, age, experience, or knowledge, because we have the Lord Jesus. Isn't that great? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are weak vessels who fail to live the way you want. Thank you that you know this and that you've sent Jesus to die so that we can be adopted into your family. Thank you that the Spirit gives us new hearts that can love and serve you. May we continue to humbly submit everything in our lives under your rule. Please expose in us anything that is contrary to your will, that we might grow in Christ-likeness and become wise. Thank you that Christ is wisdom from you, and that wisdom does not come from our own knowledge, experience, or abilities. In Jesus' name, amen.